Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Daniel Dreisbach. He's an author and a professor in the School of Public Affairs at American University in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're going to talk about a book that he's authored called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. So, Daniel, thank you so much for coming. Well, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, great. Uh, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into the area of study that you're focused on right now. Well, that's a, a an, an interesting story. So I have, for a long time, been a student of uh, law and politics in the American founding era. And by that, I'm simply referring to the last third or so of the 18th century, that time in the life of the nation when American colonists begin to agitate for their rights as freeborn Englishmen and believing that they weren't uh, being granted those rights, fight and secure independence. And so this is really where my interests lie. I- I'm also, by training, a lawyer, and I practice law, mainly in the area of First Amendment law. And uh, one interesting aspect of this area of law is that the Supreme Court, in its many rulings in this area, has said that its its rulings are governed by, are informed by, an understanding of a history of of the original purposes for the First Amendment rights. And so, as a practicing lawyer, I was sort of drawn into this history because the court relies and cites this history so so extensively and then of course if the his, if the history that the court recites is not accurate then that raises serious questions about its its rulings its interpretations and so that's what initially drew me into this area of history but uh, I've moved far beyond my interest in how the court uses history to looking much more broadly at this intersection of religion, law, and politics in the American founding. And they all play a very important role in uh, in framing our Constitution and, and shaping the political society that we have today. Well, how much has it has it shaped the founding of our nation? You know, I've, I've heard many people say, you know, we're a Judeo-Christian nation founded on those values. How many of the founders were men of faith? What faiths? And how did this? Uh, I know it's a big question, but how much is faith a yeah. part of our founding? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's an enormous question. I can't I can't read the hearts of men and, and women. I can tell you what they said. I can talk about some of the fruits of their lives when we speak of the founders. But I would start by saying that religion uh, was a very important part of the culture of the time. Uh, this was at the founding era, an overwhelmingly Protestant culture. Sociologists estimate that. Uh, Probably a little over 98% of all Americans of European descent in 1776 would have identified with with some expression of Protestantism. A little bit over one, one and a half percent would have identified as Roman Catholic. And then there was a, a number of uh, maybe two to three thousand Jews 
and in the 13 colonies, again, in about 1776. Now, that just gives you a, a very general demographic picture. How important was religion? I, I think it was a fairly important component. I think it, it shaped values. It was very much a part of education. Americans were a very literate people, a very high literacy rate. And many, if not most Americans of this age, would have learned to read with a copy of the English Bible, in particular the King James translation of the Bible, in front of them. So it's very deeply embedded in, in the culture. Now, again, I can't speak to how many were people of genuine faith as opposed to of a, a more cultural expression of faith, but it was very much a part of language, education, arts, letters, and, and, and that. And, and I would argue, and this is something that I write about in my book, it also very much informs the law and the legal culture of the age, and it's going to go on to inform the American Constitution in some rather significant ways. I would suggest that many laws in colonial America and, and, and some important features of the U.S. Constitution reflect theological ideas, even biblical ideas. So my answer is uh, religion is a very important part of the American founding. That is not to say it's the only uh, important influence. There are other competing intellectual traditions at play in the in the life of the mind in the late 18th century, but it's a very important one. And I think that if, if we ignore the role of religion, we, we lose a lot in our understanding of, of the time and the ideas that were informing that generation of Americans. Well, when you say 98% were Protestants, for people that don't know, including me, what are the main tenets of being a Protestant that are useful to give people context on what the belief system was? Yes. So uh, when I speak of Protestants, I am uh, referring to a vein of Christianity. We often associate Protestantism with the great revolution of the early 16th century unleashed by Martin Luther. Uh, you remember the stories of uh, nailing the 95 Theses to the castle door, challenging the purity and, and the theology of the Roman Church at that time. Now, Protestantism a breakaway, if you will, take that core word, protest, Protestantism, breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church, is going to take a, a number of different expressions in itself. Of course, there's the followers of Luther that we would call Lutherans, but we're also going to find a, an even more influential vein of Protestantism in America, and that is the followers of John Calvin. John Calvin was a, was a French theologian, uh, lived in Geneva, Switzerland, the great systematic theologian of the Protestant Reformation. And many of his followers are are going to come to America. We see them, for example, in the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. This is the theology of the French Huguenots who come to the New World. Uh, it is also part of the German Reformed and the Dutch Reformed churches and, and the immigrants that come to America from those traditions. Now, so Protestants tend to give a, a very high regard to the Bible. They see the Bible as their authority in all matters of faith and practice. And so they hold the Bible in very high esteem. Uh, they also believe very much in a personal born-again experience uh, that is a, a work of grace as opposed to a work of, of one's own doing, right? One enters into the faith tradition uh, by a work of, of salvation uh, through the grace that Jesus extends 
rather than by our good works. And so these would be some important features of Protestant uh, theology as well as their practice. So how did that shape the founding documents of the U.S.? You know, anything specific you can speak about? Yes. So I would I would argue that the Bible influences, uh, especially the Bible as interpreted through a Protestant lens, is going to have a rather significant influence on uh, American political theology and, 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 and American constitutional tradition. And it does so in a, in a, in a variety of ways. But let me just mention a, a couple, some very general and some very specific. But in a very general sense, the American founders, despite whatever differences they might have had, uh, the diversity of their own thought, were generally agreed on a political, what I would call a political anthropology, an understanding of who man is. And I think this is really important. If you're going to build a new political society, I think it's it's very useful to start with, with an understanding of who uh, human beings are. Uh, this is going to inform uh, the kind of design, the shape of a government and constitution that you create. And the American founders uh, embraced a, a very Protestant understanding of human nature. And I would say a biblical understanding of human nature as interpreted by Protestants. And that is that man was a profoundly flawed, fallen creature. Uh, this arises out of the uh, out of the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden that we read about in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter three. And so, man is a fallen creature, not to be trusted. And so, we see an obsession on the part of the American founders for for things like checks and balances, separation of powers. If you read the Federalist Papers, for example, that that great uh, sort of polemical work that was uh, uh, created to promote ratification of the Constitution, uh, it paints this picture of human nature as rather dark and needing control. Uh, for example, in Federalist Paper uh, 37, James Madison writes of, of the, the infirmities and the depravities of the human character. Now, this is going to just shape the most basic features of American constitutional design. It's going to be the reason why the framers put so much emphasis on the rule of law, due process, separation of powers, checks and balances, these kinds uh, of ideas. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. And again, I think it arises out of a profoundly theological understanding of human nature, one that the founding generation believed was taught in the Bible. Now, that's a, that's a, a, a very general sort of way in which the Bible informs uh, the founding and the constitutional tradition. It's also going to be a, a source of influence on, on uh, some very specific features of the Constitution. Uh, for example, in Article 1, Section 8, uh, it says, Congress shall have power to fix the standard of weights and measures 
Now, going back all the way to England, England judges, uh, we would call them common law jurists, have for centuries said this is an idea that is, and I'm quoting here from one of the most famous of the English jurists. He says, this is a principle grounded upon the law of God. And he's citing the work of Moses, uh, in particular, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, which speaks of the, uh, of the necessity for a standard of weights and measures. Or here's another example. In Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution, it says that when there are trials for treason, convictions must be based on the testimony of two witnesses. Again, this is another idea that the English jurists going back centuries and similarly embraced by Americans said this is a principle grounded upon the law of God. And they would cite very specific biblical texts, in particular texts like Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Or let me just give you one last example, and we could really go through many, many examples of this nature. But one that's rather interesting because it's 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 fairly well documented, and that is in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, uh, we find a prohibition on what we call double jeopardy, that is trying someone twice for the same offense. Now, we can go all the way back to the third or fourth century when one of the great church fathers, a, a man by the name of St. Jerome, he wrote a commentary in which he said, this is an idea found in the book of the prophet Nahum to be found in the Hebrew scriptures or what Christians call the Old Testament. And he cited in particular Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, as, as the origins of this idea that you can't try someone twice for the same offense. And what we find is we can trace this influence and it's, it's and the citation of St. Jerome and the book, uh, the work of the prophet Nahum. We can find this in, in legal traditions that carry us from Rome to England, across the Atlantic into the colonial world. It becomes a part of the colonial laws, and eventually it's enshrined in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. So this is just a handful of, of a number of examples where we see ideas that have been said to originate in the Bible find expression in in American law, and in particular, American constitutional law. Now, I do want to make one caveat, and that is to say, this is not to suggest that these are ideas only find, found in the Bible. There are other legal traditions that can embrace some of these ideas or similar ideas. But the point I would make here is that American colonists and, Amer and, and eventually uh, independent Americans they would have come to understand and and appreciate these legal principles by way of this biblical theological tradition. But again, you might find similar expressions of these ideas in other legal traditions. I was going to ask you, uh, when was the um, the First Amendment to the Constitution put forth? And is there a moment in time at which you, we see the um, the influence of the Bible fall away from our, our legal system here in the U.S.? Well, so to answer the first part of your question, the Constitution was, was written in the summer of 1787 in what we today call Independence Hall in Philadelphia. It was released to the public for debate and for ratification by, by the states. And uh, there was a very uh, bitter debate over whether this proposed Constitution was was suitable or whether it was not. You may recall, we see the emergence of, of two competing camps. We, we call them today the, the Federalists, who supported a strong central government, and they supported this proposed Constitution. On the other hand, there were skeptics of this proposed Constitution, but history has come to call the Anti-Federalists. They tended to support more localized government. 
And out of this bitter debate, there is a proposal that we adopt the Constitution, but perhaps with contingency, that is to say, contingent on some amendments being added to this document. And that's exactly what happened. The, the Constitution was ratified. A new government was formed under this Constitution. It begins to organize and meet in early uh, 1789. The first Congress under the Constitution meets late spring 1789. And one of the first things that they turn their attention to is this idea that had come out of the bitter ratification debates. And that is, we need some amendments. We need to clarify, to make clear certain ideas and principles that perhaps weren't spelled out as clearly as many Americans would have liked. And so it is the first Congress under the Constitution in the summer of 1789 who draft what were the first amendments to the Constitution, those amendments that we today call the Bill of Rights. Interestingly, by the way, the first Congress drafted 12 amendments, 12 amendments. What we call the First Amendment was the third amendment of those 12. But when the amendments left Congress, they go to the states for ratification by the states. And the states declined to ratify the first two of those amendments. And so what had been the third amendment becomes our first amendment. And of course, it's a, it's a great expression of the rights that we have in a, in a democratic Republican society, right? Of freedom of religion, the rights of conscience, we might say freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition. These are essential rights, by the way, uh, for the exercise of one's faith, right? Think of freedom of religion, but it's, it includes the right to assemble, to corporately, uh, to come together for corporate worship, uh, the right to, to, to print the Bible and other religious literature. And so there's a, there's a kind of underlying religious theme to the, to the five enumerated rights in the First Amendment. But almost from the beginning, I would say, there is a debate about uh, the first 16 words of the First Amendment, which is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And the question is, what do we mean by an establishment of religion? One view would say what this language is prohibiting is the establishment of a of a national church like the Church of England in, in the old world or the, the Roman Catholic Church in places like France, for example. So a very institutional restriction on religion. Um, but there were others at the time and they have, I think, grown in their influence who say, no, this language prohibiting an establishment of religion is something that perhaps we should think of much more broadly. And, and Thomas Jefferson, our third president, uh, wrote a letter in, in January 1802 in which he famously used the language of the First Amendment was intended to build a wall of separation between church and state. And so that suggests a much more expansive restriction on the place and the role of religion in civic affairs. And so I hope what I've, I've described here is that almost from the beginning, we've, we've had a, a rather robust discussion and conversation in this country about what role religion can play, should play, consistent with the language of, of the First Amendment. It is certainly, I think, the case that as we moved into the 20th century, uh, courts have, have uh, placed a much more restrictive role 
under this idea of a separation of church and state that religion can play. But if you follow the news closely, you know the last few years the Supreme Court has ruled a number of cases in which they've gone the other direction, right? We see a little pendulum swinging one way and then the other. And uh, the current uh, swing in the pendulum coming from the Supreme Court of the United States would suggest that no, religion has a vital role important role to play uh, in public life and that uh, it shouldn't be overly restrictive. And so this is a long-standing debate, and I can guarantee you, I don't guarantee much, but I can guarantee you that this is a debate that will continue for years to come. Where do you see things uh, evolving, or is it really more of a pendulum so they're not necessarily going far in one direction, but they're just oscillating between two two schools of thought or two poles? Like what, what do you see? over the arc of the whole United States so far? So that's a that's a very, very interesting question. And I think it's it's the kind of question that we might want to uh, sort of assess on different levels, right? I just made reference to uh, how the Supreme Court has been interpreting the First Amendment. Uh, does it allow for expansive, an expansive role for religion and public life, or does it uh, mandate a more restrictive role? And just as we've seen a pendulum swing in that regard to the current court, uh, more welcoming of a public place for religion, I think we, at a very different level, we might want to look at uh, sort of the place of religion in the culture more generally. What role does religion play in, in the lives of ordinary American citizens? Before we get into that, it seems like I'm hearing from all sides, oh, religion's going away, less people are going to church. It's really not important because it's diminishing. But do you see it as like a monotonic diminishment or is it not like that at all? It's simply, a, again, an up and down, up and down. Yeah. If we look at the broad sweep of American history, I think clearly we see moments of secularization, we might say. We see other moments of spiritual awakening, right? Two great moments in American history that is often discussed in history classes, whether it be high school or college, is the first great awakening and the second great awakening. These were two rather significant religious revivals, uh, religious awakenings. Now, interestingly, we might want to focus on the awakening, the revival part, but you don't have an awakening unless you've fallen asleep, right? That suggests that there was a kind of a falling away from religious fervor that preceded these awakenings. So uh, to use your language, it suggests an up and down, a rise and fall of the fervor with which Americans hold religion in their culture and in their lives. Some students of, of Religion America speak of third and fourth awakenings, less defined, but uh, suggesting that there have been uh, later uh, significant uh, revivals in American life. I think the evidence would suggest that at the moment, we're seeing a less church attendance, for example. We see certainly a falling away of certain laws that would have undergirded religious practices. For example, when I was when I was a boy, uh, it was not uncommon for states to have laws that said uh, you couldn't open a store on Sunday. Right. Or uh, yep. you couldn't sell or sell alcohol. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, those laws have fallen away. Right. So that suggests a kind of a second. We're, we're in a moment of secularization. And again, if you add to that some other indicators, things like, you know, a church attendance, how regular do people attend church or read uh, sacred texts like the Bible or how many Americans say they believe in a God or believe in prayer, these kinds of things. There's a uh, ample 
survey data on these kinds of questions, it would suggest that there is a growing spirit of secularization afoot at the moment in American society. I am not a prophet, so I don't know where this is going to go, right? I don't know if this is moving in one direction or whether it's just one of those rising and fallings uh, that we've referenced and we're going to see some kind of reawakening uh, down the road. I just, I, I don't know. But it's- Well, I'm, I'm sure other people have studied, or maybe you have studied, like, again, over the course of American history, how many waves have there been? Like, who's characterized them, the heights and the depths and the frequency and when they were, like, how many times has this happened, this up and down of religious, yeah, relig religiosity or fervor? Yeah. Well, one, one complicating factor in evaluating that question is that when you speak of the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening, so the first Great Awakening we associate with the, with the great uh, clergyman Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, great evangelists, but there were many others uh, a, a part of that awakening. This is... Uh, we're talking about 1730s, 1740s, 50s, something like that. This is before the American Revolution. The Second Great Awakening, it, it begins to stir at the very, very end, the late 1790s, very end of the 18th century. And it contends, continues for another you know, three or four decades. One of the things that set these revivals apart is they seem to have had a very expansive influence on the American people, right? They were, you know, the, the Great Awakenings touched, it, it would seem, all the colonies in the First Great Awakening, all of the independent states in the Second Great Awakening. And it, what complicates this is there are, of course, many stories. We read about it on a regular basis in our own time of very regional reawakenings, right? Um, you may have followed the story within the past year about a, what, what appeared to be, to some people at least, um, kind of religious revival that was taking place in Kentucky, right? Uh, that's just within the last year. So what, what's significant about the First and Second Great Awakening was their sort of their, their expansive reach. Now, whether there have been later revivals with that similar kind of expansive, even continental reach, I don't really know. There are, as you say, scholars that, that this is what they study. And of course, you know, how do you measure a, a religious revival? What are the indi indicators of that? Um, th these are, you know, sort of tough calls, uh, hard things to, to evaluate, as is true in so many um, uh, behaviors of, of humans. But yeah, as I said, there are there are scholars who speak of later revivals. I think they're a little less defined than that first and second Great Awakening, but certainly there have been scholars who who, who purport to to identify later revivals, and, and again we may see uh, uh, something of a national revival sometime down the road. But again, I, I am not a prophet in that respect. I know you don't study all of lawmaking, but when you look at lawmaking over the past, let's say 10, 20, 30 years, what does it look like now versus what it looked like maybe a hundred years ago or you know two hundred plus years ago? In terms of the religious influence on laws, is that what you mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I think the trend has been a, a greater secularization of, of laws. And so um, I, I think that if there is a law that were to emerge today, if a legislature passes a law that, that can't be defended on secular grounds, I think courts would, would be inclined to strike that law down. In other words, if a law only serves a religious purpose, 
then uh, the courts would say that's that's a violation of that First Amendment prohibition on laws respecting an establishment of religion. And so laws that might have been uh, that might have required in, in, in centuries past church attendance or that kind of thing are no longer part of our legal culture, our legal landscape today. Now, we might find some small reflections of them remaining, but um, by and large, uh, religiously driven laws are are few and far between today. Now, there are laws that certainly have an impact on religion that can be defended on strictly secular grounds, and, and courts would be much more inclined to, to affirm a law of that nature, right? So there might be a law that strikes you as being, let's say, a law prohibiting blasphemy, but if it's really about prohibiting a kind of, of riotous conduct or disorderly or, or, or violent conduct, and it's defended on those uh, grounds, courts, I think, might be much more inclined to to affirm such laws. So I think that's kind of where, where we are today. So what, what, what kind of questions are you trying to answer at this moment with your research? So here's how I sort of got involved in this, this latest book I've written. It's, it's called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. As I mentioned at the start of, of this um, conversation, I have spent years reading political legal documents of this particular era. And I was always struck by the fact that there are many, many references and allusions and quotations from the Bible and the literature of, uh, of the American founding era. And yet, relatively little attention has been given uh, to that source of influence, at least in, in scholarly circles. There's, there are many works written, for example, on the influence of someone like a John Locke, uh, the English political theorist, or uh, Baron de Montesquieu, the, the French thinker on the American founding. Uh, there are, are books written, uh, many books written on the influence of, of the Greeks and the Romans, right? Classical Republican thought. And so what I have tried to do in, in this book, and it's really been my focus here of, of research in recent years, is to add to that list of influences the, the role that the Bible played in American founding principles and in the institutions of the American founding. Now, I want to be very clear here. Uh, it is not my argument that the Bible is the only source of influence on the American founders. I'm not even sure I'm making the arguments the primary source. Rather, I am, I am suggesting that if you want to have a, an appreciation for the broad range of ideas that informed the American founding and, and the institutions of the American founding, uh, we must add to, to this mix of intellectual influences a biblical tradition, uh, the influence of religion on the American foundings. But again, I'm not dismissing uh, or diminishing the influence of, of thinkers like a John Locke or, or a Montesquieu or, or the Greeks and the Romans. I'm just I'm suggesting that that Americans were rather creative on in drawing on diverse sources uh, to make something that they thought was particularly suited for their own needs as a people. And among the sources that they drew on was was the Bible. All right. Well, very good. Daniel, where can people find out more about your research and your thoughts? Well, the, probably the easiest place. I, I don't have a large footprint uh, footprint in social media, but I am on Twitter. I am at D the letter D, three, the letter three, 
B-A-C-H, D-3-B-A-C-H. And I tweet primarily about this subject matter that we've been talking about. And I usually will uh, post notes as to uh, forthcoming or recently published works and uh, and speaking engagements and things of that nature. Uh, my books, of course, can also be found in almost any online uh, bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the like. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.